कफस उदास है यारों सबास कुछ तो कहो Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Welcome everyone to the new academic year at Stanford and a new set of episodes of the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, the PSASPod. Today I am joined by Ana Cristina Lopez, visiting fellow at the Center for South Asia. Ana is a cultural anthropologist who specializes in the globalization of Tibetan Buddhism. She is the author of Tibetan Buddhism in Diaspora, Cultural Resignification in Practice and Institutions, which was published in New York and London by Ratledge in 2015. And it explores the dynamics of the resignification of Tibetan Buddhism in transnational settings. Now, before I start my conversation with Anna, I would like to remind you all to please follow the SASPod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, give us a rate and review because it really helps with the algorithm and then more people can listen to the SASPod. Thank you so much. You can also follow CSA Stanford on Instagram. Anna, thank you so much for joining me on this first episode of the new academic year. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for this invitation. And also, I'd like to thank the center uh, for supporting my work. And it's really a great pleasure to be part of it, to be part of the Center for South Asia. Well, we so. love to have you. Thank you so much. Um, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your interests, and your research. Well, I, uh, I am, as you said, a cultural anthropologist. Um, and I was quite a pioneer in my original country, Brazil. I actually, my uh, uh, dissertation, my PhD dissertation was the first uh, PhD dissertation about Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism in the country. So, wow. yeah. That's, a, that's so, amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. So it was quite a, a, an interesting endeavor, you know, like to just start something uh, in a place where we had, you know, very little references. So uh, I can talk a little bit about more about that uh, later, but just to continue a little bit with my uh, introduction. Um, so later I came to the States uh, where, I mean, before, even before finishing my PhD, I, I stayed here for a while uh, and did a MA in Buddhist studies at Columbia University. And, uh, and then I came back as a postdoc uh, at least a couple of times, three times actually, at Harvard, at uh, Columbia University itself, and also at NYU where I 
at that point, uh, I was uh, very interested in the intersection between uh, anthropology and performance studies. Mm. So, and that's something that's a little bit reflected uh, in my work uh, in this uh, in the new version of my book because I defended that uh, my dissertation in Brazil in uh, in two thousand four, but then later I uh, when I, I published it, I published it in Portuguese, but then. Uh, this book you mentioned in the beginning of our podcast is uh, actually, uh, it's a little bit the result of this uh, dissertation, but also uh, the result of later research and uh, in particular reflections about this idea of uh, this intersection between performance studies and anthropology. We can talk a little bit about that, but that's something that uh, was there from the beginning in, in my uh, my first work, but that kind of gained a, a new form in this, uh, let's say, in this new incarnation of my book. So that's it. And currently, I mean, and then so I'm someone who is very interested since the, the beginning of my uh involvement with Tibetan Buddhism, I could not help myself but think about it in global terms, even though I had, you know, in principle, I had no ambition, you know, to talk about the transnationalization of Tibetan Buddhism. You know, I was just doing some fieldwork in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, but then uh, everything that I encountered in the field would kind of take me, would kind of, you know, point me to other circuits. So naturally, I really, I mean, my, uh, my kind of analytical trajectory, the analytical trajectory of my dissertation is what kind of took me uh, to this more transnational field of Tibetan Buddhism. But it's really like the subject that was speaking to me. You know, it's like naturally, like uh, that was its nature. So I was following. How you started out? You were studying Tibetan Buddhism in Sao Paulo, and then you realized that this is a global phenomenon, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was studying some cases, like for instance, the case of uh, a very interesting case of a a Brazilian Lama, someone who was, you know, in the Tibetan Buddhist context, recognized as a reincarnation of a Tibetan Lama by a very, very uh, high uh, Tibetan Buddhist hierarchy. So, and this person had a whole trajectory in, in Tibetan, uh, yeah, sorry, in Brazilian spiritualist traditions, ah. like Candomblé and Umbanda. So he had, he was a medium himself. And he's someone who was also, so he was like one of my main characters and that seemed enough, you know, like, <laughs> But that was not enough, never, because he himself, he lives, he's still alive. He, his name is Sego Rinpoche. He lives here in Sebastopol. And he's the first one to kind of bring me abroad a little bit to see this other reality. So, you know, I would do my field work with him in Brazil, but then also encounter him, the same character, but surrounded by different people, like with a kind of different uh, way of, relating to the tradition too. So that was changing too. So this is the kind of thing I was like from the beginning having to deal with. 
So my, my work from the beginning is like was kind of had this kind of transnational, unavoidable transnational take in a way. Um, I want to ask you about this intersection of anthropology and performance studies. And I don't know if I want to do that now or later. What do you think? <laughs> you in or do you want to hold back a little? Well, we can talk a little bit about that. Okay, uh, yes. because, uh, <laughs> and then how does Tibetan Buddhism fit into it? Oh, it totally does. Because in a way, like, I mean, we, we when I saw so that was, a, you know, a later phase in my career, when I was in, uh, also connected to a center in Brazil, which was called like the Center for Anthropology, Performance and Arts. And we are really, it was like not only me, but a lot of people in the center trying to think through these ideas, reading a lot of, you know, like, one of the great, uh, let's say, inspirators of this kind of this uh, intersection between anthropology and uh, performance studies is Victor Turner, this great anthropologist uh, that used to work at UVA. And that's where I worked for a little bit. So it was a kind of nice to, to go there. And uh, he was like, he is just like, for him, ritual perform. I mean, anything connected to this kind of uh, more social aspects of uh, religion had to do with performance. And I mean, that's an old idea, right? So um, in a way, I, I mean, I was interested uh, for me uh, in, my, in this new, uh, let's say, incarnation of my uh, previous work, when I uh, got to publish my book uh, with Rutledge, I decided to rewrite my second chapter, which was basically about the fifth Dalai Lama. And, and so, you know, I, even though I'm an anthropologist, I was very interested in looking at the past because this whole new uh, moment for Tibetan Buddhism was very much anchored in like traditional elements mm -hmm. that in a way gained new, uh, it was re-signified and that's hence, the title of my book. So it was resignified in this new context. And as I told you, as I, I'm giving you more or less some clues to how I'm thinking, you know, even one figure like this uh, Brazilian Lama who would come to Brazil every now and then was like almost a different character in a new environment. I... So, so this kind of uh, uh, dynamics is what interested me. So my work is by no means exhaustive, but it really deals with these uh, kinds of dynamics. So to go back to the idea of performance studies, one thing that was really that really interests me is like the way these characters were performing themselves. Mm -hmm. So this second chapter is a chapter in which I, I talk about it more theoretically, in a way, about the way the fifth Dalai Lama builds his own identity, his own political identity. You know, if, I mean, I should explain a little bit who was the fifth Dalai Lama, right? Everybody knows the 14th Dalai Lama. Who is, it's like such a... I know if many great... people know he's the 14th. So yes, tell us a little bit more about the fifth. Yeah, the fifth Dalai Lama is a, it's also known as the great fifth. And why is that? Because he's the one who uh, created the government uh, of the Dalai Lamas. He's the one who uh, established this uh, succession uh, in the, in the uh, 17th century, uh, Tibet. And there was a lot of 
effort. Like, and you can see that you can when you study the you know Tibetan literature, old texts like Tibetan history, you see that there was a whole a real effort in creating um, an identity for the government and, ident and an identity for the Dalai Lamas. And the Dalai Lama, the fifth Dalai Lama was uh, absolutely an interesting figure who did that through his own writings uh, and talking a lot about history and talking, and talking about his visions and then his visions also, you know, he had a lot of visions. He has a whole uh, work uh, just about that's published in English too. I, I forgot the title now, but it's an art book too because he has a beautiful manuscript, illuminated manuscript. So that has become, it was part of a, a, a exhibition in Paris uh, in 2006. And then it became a beautiful book with the translation of that, these visions. And these visions, and that's what really interested me at the time is also to understand how this very, very private thing of the Dalai Lama, his own visionary experience became part of the state through, through uh, great festivals, especially. So there was one in particular in which his visions were reenacted. So this is the kind of thing that was kind of interests me. And the, the importance for the fifth of the fifth Dalai Lama is that, that He's great. Uh, he has a great importance also for the current Dalai Lama. All the Dalai Lamas look back at this Dalai Lama for inspiration, and and he is the. I mean, he was the state. He has this, you know, like kind of strong political sense. So I was interested in 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 bringing this idea of performance studies to that. So, to, but in a very kind of specialized view of it, which is like how to perform your own identity and how you do that. You know, you do that through writing, through that, you do that through, you know, festivals and many other things. So I was very interested in that. And the, my, so this is my second chapter. And then my sixth chapter, if I'm not mistaken, because I have different numbers in the two books <laughs> about the Kalachakra initiation is in a way mirrors the second chapter. And that's about the 14th Dalai Lama, you know, performing this great, great ritual that he does uh, a lot. You know, I think he has done it more than, I mean, for sure more than 30 times, maybe 36 times now uh, all over the world. So this beautiful kind of uh, tantric ritual, you know, in which like in, country, in countries like uh, uh, Ladakh, you're gonna have the presence of like a hundred thousand people, three hundred. You know what I mean? It's insane. I also I did uh, an ethnographic film about it. I I wrote my chapter and I, I yeah, it's something that I use mainly for my classes. Uh, it's a very experimental kind of uh, film, uh, but the idea is like to to get a little bit transported into this crazy environment. And in the in this particular case, it was like in Bodh Gaya. So, and that was like, uh, I don't know, some, some amazing experience. But anyway, uh, just to go back to the topic of performance studies. So that's the other side of the second chapter. And that's my ethnographic kind of take on it. So first I studied the text a little bit, and then I have this ethnographic take. But in this second moment, then you have a totally different kind of relationship, because then you have the state supporting all these performances, right? And then 
in diaspora, what you're going to have is like the performance kind of taking the place of the state a little bit because the Dalai Lama is there like really kind of um, being ahead of state in a way. I mean, he has a, a lot of importance because of his previous position and he's quite an amazing figure. I mean, I feel like we are very lucky to be alive at the same time as a figure that the Dalai Lama, probably the last Dalai Lama. And it's uh, something uh, for me, like quite fascinating. I love this question of how to perform your own identity. That feels like that is, it's almost the kind of quintessential question of how do we negotiate life? It's such a big question. How do we perform our own identity? So I'm going to sit with that after, um, after the podcast. Um, Tell me about kind of these um, uh, global uh, interpretations of Tibetan Buddhism. What, what? Because I, I, I gather that you traveled all over the world to, um, to interact with Tibetan Buddhism, and and how does it live in different places? And then how does that compare to? I don't know if there is a kind of original version, um, an OG uh, in Darshana. <laughs> Um, but if so, how does it compare? Is that not a comparison worth making? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, in a way, I, I'm a big follower, like intellectually speaking, of Bruno Latour. And with these ideas of, you know, kind of assemblage and networks. Actually, when I wrote my book, I, I was not so much, I mean, I, I didn't know his work so well, but in a way, I was already anticipating some of his ideas. I, I mean, not I was not anticipating his ideas, naturally plugging in with ideas that he had anticipated a long time, long before me. But in a way, I was not aware of it. Right. But I very, then later, when I became more aware of his work, I really identified. So that's why I'm citing him, even though he doesn't figure in my book. Uh, I, I feel like because he talks about networks in a way that uh, trying very hard not to emphasize one thing over the other. He doesn't believe in things like, let's say, like some kind of institutionalized. Uh, he's against his vision is much more uh, onto the networks than onto like some kind of on the nodes of it. You have nodes in the network. But they are just nodes. So in this kind of, there is, for sure, there is no original or anything by now. If it ever, uh, I mean, I don't believe it ever was in a way. But for sure, there is reference, as I said before. There is a lot of still connections that are still there with, you know, what Tibetan Buddhism was in Tibet. So there is, a, there is an, an inertia there. And of course, the Dalai Lama is very much an important uh, uh, figure in the middle of all of that but of course in, especially in this kind of global situation and that's what a, a little bit maybe I should talk about one thing that I talked in my book uh, that can help us think through uh, what you asked me which is the idea of like field you know and I was following uh, Pierre Bourdieu uh, when I uh, wrote about that but trying to think really in a transnational way so I, at that time, I could not help myself, but to think in terms of networks, because you could see that everything was connected and everything like the local was very much influenced by the global all the time. 
But the problem, as Latour says, is like what's global and what's local. In a way, these are things like we create that in a way and, and create these narratives. But uh, what do you get when you're like really dealing with this complex uh, case of Tibetan Buddhism is that the, the global is in the local all the time. And I think all cases are like that, actually. But Tibetan Buddhism is a great example of that. And uh, so uh, I think that what I really analyzed in my, my book is a little bit the kind of the political dynamics involved in that. So it's not so much that people are trying to be, uh, let's say, genuine or more like Dhamsala or more like this or that. I mean, they're trying to go for some kind of origin, some kind of tradition. This is always there, of course. But the models are many. And of course, Tibetan Buddhism has never been, even though we have the figure of the Dalai Lama uh, very strongly, I mean, we have to understand that he, he is not the Pope, yeah. what the Pope is for the Catholics. He is uh, a political figure. He was the head of state. He was a king, you know, in a very interesting kind of dynasty which is by incarnation, and, and he is the, you know, he belongs to one specific sect. And you have like, uh, you can count three or four other major or even five major sects of like connect or Tibetan Buddhism, or also uh, Bun, which is a kind of very connected to Buddhism, but they, they are doing their own thing. So the Dalai Lama had, and then in diaspora also, he ended up uh, acquiring a more kind of a different role in a way. Yeah. He's suddenly almost like a Pope kind of view. See, he, he started to have more influence in other sects. Yeah. Something they, he didn't necessarily had before. So, so everything has changed. Yeah. But at the same time, you have a lot of elements that remain the same. So it's so for me it's interesting to see how that you know how that works in in actuality. So and I encountered a lot of that and a lot of uh, political tension there too. But uh, quite interesting. But also, but to go back to your question a little bit and uh, about the differences between the many places, because of course there are differences. Right. I don't think there is this idea of like, uh, that's the right one, but each people, each person is, is doing something a little bit different. And, um, and I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about it in general terms, but I can say like uh, things like, in all these years in my observation, even after my ethno ethnographic uh, uh, time in the field, um, I mean, my general uh, observations of Buddhism shows me, uh, show me that uh, actually, um, like for instance, in Catholic countries, people tend to have a totally different relationship with the tradition than, it was very different from uh, some Protestant countries, and especially the states, for instance, like the the kind of relationship is quite different. I mean, I I know quite well uh, cent a center in in Austria, and of course I know the reality in Brazil, and Austria is a Catholic country like Brazil, and I I can see that there is uh, similar uh, similarities between the two, like for instance, like a, a kind of. Uh, like people accept more uh, ritual, 
for uh, instance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like in Protestant countries, this is there's something more, you know, like kind of not against it. You know, it's impossible to do Tibetan Buddhism without rituals, so that would be a lost cause. But it's less <laughs> favor somehow. You know, that but it's subtle, it's very hard to generalize. But you know, you start to have a feeling, and I heard that from Lamas too. So I'm not alone in these uh, impressions. In, um, in, in the Netherlands, um, we have a saying. So the north of the Netherlands is traditionally Protestant. And I mean, people aren't very religious at this point, but I think culturally it's very much there. Uh, and then the south of the Netherlands going into Belgium uh, is more Catholic. And people in the south of the Netherlands say that um, you have more fun at a Catholic funeral than you do at a Protestant <laughs> I tend to agree. <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> I also wanted to clarify the people you work with who I I sorry either identify as Tibetan Buddhist are involved with Tibetan Buddhism are not necessarily diasporic Tibetans. These are local people that have either converted or are involved in Tibetan Buddhism. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had, I just, uh, I, I was falling around a few lamas, but let's say my, the people, the people that I was observing were more like uh, uh, pretty much Western uh, practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, and I'm including Brazil in the West. Uh, or maybe say global sure, why not? <laughs> I don't know how to speak anymore. I'm sorry. But anyway, that's how Brazilians see themselves and uh yeah so in that you know and it's an interesting thing uh that you, you mentioned that because this is something that has to do with the brazilian tradition of anthropology and that's like uh much i think now a lot of people they're just studying their own you know backyards and things like that but we've done that all our lives in Brazil. And also India also has the same style of anthropology. It's like Brazil, Russia, India have like really very self-reflexive styles of anthropology. It's about like na nation building uh, anthropology. And of course, by and that's why probably I'm the first, you know, my PhD was the first one uh, to deal with Tibetan Buddhism in Brazil. Because people in Brazil tend to study more like Brazilian stuff. And uh, because it has to do with... Uh, I want to thank you, uh, and, and uh, including Brazil in the West, um, quote-unquote, um, also led <laughs> me to this question of, of the kind of identity politics around research, which is, and I've brought this up on the podcast before, when people from the global north um, study other cultures, other people might be curious about that. You know, we get this question, how did she get into it? But the validity of the research, the validity of the of the um, inclination is never questioned. Whereas people from the global south, however broadly defined, study other places in the global south. What I hear is that there's pushback. Like, well, why don't you study Brazil? Or if you really have to, you know, widen then, you know, Colombia. But why are you studying Tibetan Buddhism? Do you find that? Does that happen? This kind of questioning of why you're doing this work? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's subtle. It's not direct, but there is, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. 
there is a certain uh, hesitation maybe and a certain because i think especially here in the states think really work things really work you know around this idea of uh, identity politics which is a great thing it is good i mean we get i mean so many things have happened because of that but it's interesting also to be a little bit critical about it and understand that a lot of the times people don't fit in like the kind of pigeonholes that are prepared for us. And I really feel like I have a very, very long experience with this country, but I feel like there is a tendency about that. And it, it is, I mean, I feel like actually uh, my work, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I'm bragging already. Please brag. We love it. We love it. <laughs> so, so my work, I mean, really nobody, uh, I mean, not in my knowledge, nobody, I mean, I know one, of one other anthropologist who is our friend even, uh, who has written his dissertation a little bit about the same topic. His take is very different from mine. He tried to really uh, be a little bit more detailed in his analysis about like specific stuff. And my question was more like the dynamics. I was interested in these dynamics. So... I have a few uh, case studies only. He has more, but he never published his work. But that's it. So somebody from the global south, also because of the kind, and, and, and I go back to what I was telling you in the beginning of this podcast, when you talked about the, uh, this idea like of like being just like trying to focus you know, on to on my subject uh, my subjects in Brazil, my, my, my subject in Brazil. But it was impossible to ground it there because naturally it was taking me somewhere. So this trajectory is something that, in a way, I, I, I was the one who could do it. That was a totally different perspective because of that. And, apart, and there is also the influence of, you know, the very honorable Brazilian tradition of anthropology. You know, that's like people maybe don't know it so well sometimes. I, feel, I mean, here in anthropology, people tend to know it. Actually, it's a quite uh, interesting uh, anthropology that we do in Brazil. So, but you know, somehow the combination of the two things—it's too weird. You know, it's something like I'm too weird. <laughs> so maybe we're so honored that you are visiting <laughs> at the Center for South Asia. Anna, tell me what you're doing at Stanford and how you feel that Stanford is supporting you as a, as a weird. Uh, scholar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have received uh, great support from Stanford. Uh, I came here first with uh, uh, some uh, research uh, grant to do a little bit of research. And my idea was to expand a little bit uh, uh, what I was doing in terms of the transnationalization of Tibetan Buddhism uh, to also uh, encompass uh, uh, think about the new forms it was taking. And one of the things that really uh, called my attention was this intersection between Buddhism, science, and technology. Mm. So that's a little bit what I was doing at Stanford. And Stanford's a great place to think about these things. Uh, I had a chance to co-teach a class uh, that I uh, created based on this research and also uh, James Gentry, who happens to be my husband and faculty at the Religious Studies Department, we co-taught that class about Buddhism and science, and that was quite interesting uh, uh, way of like to relate to Stanford stud students 
were very much were very much coming from this uh, background of hard sciences and talk about Buddhism through that. So that was fascinating. They enriched so much my view of things. It was quite fantastic. And um, and then during that time too, I started to uh, work a little bit on uh, so this more an electronic turn of Tibetan Buddhism. So now, like, so I was interested, and I'm still uh, working a little bit about that. Uh, this uh, particular case of a Tibetan Buddhist program that is uh, kind of uh, supposed to take you all the way to awakening. So a very serious program uh, that is translated into, I don't know how many languages now, maybe eight. Uh, and it's a quite interesting case of this kind of transnational environment ah. because you have like that, that was pretty much formulated by this uh, great uh, Austrian uh, translator, scholar, and a practitioner uh, called uh, Heidi Koppel. So she's quite a brilliant mind and she put together this amazing program. And now it's being translated in all these languages, including into Nepali, including into Chinese. So it's like this, you, you see things happening from all angles. That's why there is no more center. It's very hard to speak about the center because things like that happen. So, and, you know, in a way, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but I became part of the electronic turn also of Tibetan Buddhism because now I work for this project that has the ambition to, uh, to translate uh, the complete canon of Tibetan Buddhism. And that's no small project. That's a project that would take like a hundred years. So we are really just at the beginning of it. We made great progress. It's an amazing, amazing program uh, project with a lot of brilliant people involved. You know, uh, seventeen people with PhDs in uh, in Buddhist studies, uh, basically. You know, working, uh, making this kind of effort, and we are all over the place too. You know, transnational identity is the topic. Like we are doing it from uh, all over the globe and just working on this uh, translation. Just now in two weeks, we're going to meet in Austria. It's going to be our global meeting. And uh, yeah, so. Like, I mean, so there's a quote unquote canon. That's already problematic. Like, is there a canon or is the first yeah. to figure out what that is? There is, uh, I mean, we can talk now about the close, I mean, Tibetan canon, but your, your question is absolutely pertinent because it's really hard to talk about the canon in Buddhism. But, you know, it's a kind of an open canon. So it's, a, it's for now, I mean, we're so we are translating a canon that that canon is limited. limited. I don't think it's going to grow anymore because the conditions are not there. So that so we are translating one Tibetan Buddhist canon called Dege. So that's a specific one. But you're totally right uh, to problematize this idea of canon uh, because uh, in Buddhism it's never closed. And that's why it's so, you know, that's a more the 2,500 year tradition. So the canon is quite huge, you know, and that's our task now. Do you all take like a little bit of a text and then translate it and then somehow? rework the English so that it sounds similar because everybody has their own writing style and then 
And then I imagine there's lots of interpretations about what these texts say. And I mean, I just, the mind boggles how you, (laughs) (laughs) to help me understand a bit more. (laughs) That's a great question. Thank you for that. And yeah, I mean, from the beginning, the 84,000 project, and that's the name of my, the company I work for, uh, was like uh, not to impose uh, like anything, like any kind of uh, rules like that. Uh, we should translate that word, that term like that. No. It was really open to each translator to create their own style, to impose their own style onto the text. Uh, text. So, and that's, I mean, and why could we um, do that? Precisely because of the electronic format. Because, you know, like, it, I mean, in, in Tibet, I mean, they didn't have anything electronic for sure <laughs> you know, in, the, in the eighth century, but, you know, they would, you know, add their translations. That happened many times. So this is a long-term process. And from the beginning, we just kind of took, you know, the Tibetan experience as our kind of example to follow. So we're just letting things happen a little bit. I mean, it, it is a, a scholarly kind of uh, endeavor and we are building it together, you know, with our expertises and things like that. So there is, it's not closed. So it's, we're not gonna be all like, uh, we're not gonna make all, you know, equal and easily, you're gonna find a lot of different things in the project. And yes, I don't think it will ever be. And that's the way that the canon is too. Right. Sounds amazing. And um, how can people find out more about this project? It's called the 84,000 project. Yeah, it's 84,000.co. So, co. Yeah. So, this kind of English, uh, British address. Yeah. 84,000, it's called. And you can write them, it's just a number, 84,000. Translating, it's called 84,000 translating the words of the Buddha. And it's quite an amazing uh, project in the sense of, I mean, the main mission of the project is to give access and free access to everyone to the word of the Buddha. So, uh, and so everything is free. You can just access and we are doing what we have now. It's quite amazing. It's quite moving to be translating a sutra, an amazing sutra. And I've translated a few that are just like mind blowing. And that has never been translated before into, a, you know, a European language. So it's like, Totally new knowledge and quite amazing, like uh, putting us in touch with a world that's quite something. Well, we will link to it in the show notes and uh, I hope everybody will go and take a look. Anna, thank you so much for telling us all about your work. I feel like we're just scraping this. Like you have <laughs> so much going on and you, uh, you have such a galactic mind and it's just <laughs> such an honor to talk to you. And I feel very inspired and I, I'm sure our listeners do too. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And you're too kind. <laughs> you know, thank you for having me. That has been a real pleasure to talk with you and, you know, just to be part of this amazing community of, you know, of Stanford community. The Stanford community um, is uh, changing a little. Our fantastic program coordinator, Simrat Mataru, who did all the edits for the podcast for the past two to three years, 
um, has moved on within Stanford. We are so excited for her. Um, and so I will be thanking a new person uh, for making the edits for the podcast. More to be revealed soon. Uh, but for now, please join us again next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.